Well, good morning. Uh, open, if you would, please, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And we will be in verses 13 through 16 this morning. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, um, it is my joy and my honor to be here with you this morning. Um, so, um, as we get started this morning, I would like you to consider uh, this question. What would the world be like if there were not Christians in it? And some of you may be thinking, um, especially um, if you knew me, that you would about to uh, hear a sermon on the rapture, but that is not the case this morning. Um, we'll have to save that topic for later. Um, Last week, um, as I'm told, you heard the greatest sermon that was ever preached, and that would be, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. And we can only imagine what it was like uh, to have been there to hear Jesus' original preaching of it. Um, but this morning, I want to take some time to dive a little bit deeper into these four verses of Matthew 5, 13 through 16 and what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Uh, but I think it's important to point out that um, there is a... It, it's important that these verses come directly after the Beatitudes. Um, and I have to take a moment, even though we're not talking about the Beatitudes, to talk about the importance that they come right after them. And so I do want to touch on that in the Beatitudes which can be divided into three categories, Jesus teaches us what believers are, what believers do, and what happens to believers. You see, there's a fundamental truth to understand about the relationship between the Beatitudes and the passage that we just read. And that is that the two passages are linked together, not just chronologically in Matthew's Gospel, but also in teaching. And so... Um, we will be reminded this morning that of the key theme that, that connects these two passages, and that is that a born-again believer in Jesus Christ um, has two things. One, salvation, your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ through the power of his resurrection, but also that a believer has certain characteristics. And so I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we walk through these passages. And so Matthew 5, 13 through 16 becomes a critical passage in understanding what our life is like as a Christian. And so it, let me assure you that it is no accident that this is directly after the Beatitudes. And so uh, it's important that this is in fact right the second topic, and right after the Beatitudes uh, that Jesus covers in the Sermon on the Mount. It teaches us some foundational truths about the Christian life and about Christianity. 
And so this morning we're going to look at four fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Um, and the first one we're going to look at is the nature of the world. Um, and so first let's take a look at 2 Timothy 2, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I'd like you to pay special attention to some of the language that Paul uses to describe people in this passage. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at, the, at a knowledge of the truth." Proud, arrogant, abusive, heartless, treacherous, lovers of pleasure. That sounds pretty accurate to the world today. Listen also to what Romans 1 says about the nature of the world in verses 29 through 32. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You see, the world, or rather the people who are in it, are wicked. They are steeped in the mire of their own sin, hating God and loving evil. The news is full of examples of this. Murders, mass shootings, riots, and these are just to name a few. Not only just our news, but our society is full of examples, rampant pornography, music, and television that glorify sexual impurity, and theft, and murder. What's even worse is the growing acceptance in our society of the lie that Satan is the one who represents love, while Jesus Christ is the one who represents hate. Christians, we have to wake up. We live in a society that now promotes sin as the way that life should be rather than, than righteousness. Our society now promotes and accepts sin as what should be done rather than good. And so Paul was exactly right when he says that they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And this is the fundamental problem. Humankind is totally sinful. We live in a world that is dominated by sin, a world that is decayed and has no spiritual growth of its own. 
So what is the solution? We are going to cover that um, by looking at our next two points, the nature of the Christian. There are two aspects to this that Jesus gives us in the passage. And we'll talk about them one at a time, but I'll tell you what they are. Verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. And verse 16 says, you are the light of the world. In both cases here, the word you is an emphatic in the Greek. And so the passage is better translated or better said as you alone are the salt and you alone are the light. And so we'll unpack what that means by first taking a look at salt. So when you think of salt, what do you think of? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? For me, it's actually my friend Chris. Um, my friend Chris used to love salt. He loved salt so much, he put it on everything that he ate. Everything. And I remember he would even put it on pizza. Um, even if he ordered pepperoni pizza, he would load it with salt. And so I remember one time um, back when we were younger, I walked into his apartment, and on his coffee table in his living room was a salt lick. I, I kid you not, I didn't even believe my eyes. I asked him, I'm like, is that a salt lick? And it's, yeah, I'm not even joking, the very thing that you would put in a field for cows, sitting on his, on his living room uh, coffee table. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. A friend of mine gave it to me because I because he knew how much I loved salt. And then he walked over to it and he licked it. Uh, that's how much that he loved salt. And so, uh, so table salt and taste are certainly one of the first things that comes to our mind when we hear the word salt. Um, and that's probably where, where our mind goes when we hear this passage. And as a matter of fact, many different things have been put forth as to what Jesus meant by salt um, when, uh, when he was talking in this passage. Um, things that have been mentioned are a way to improve taste, a way to cause thirst, a destructive force, a method of cleaning, healing, or stinging, thinking, think about salt in the wound, um, or a symbol of wealth or blessing. Uh, but these things don't do a very good job of explaining what Jesus likely had in mind uh, here in this passage. Uh, the best way to understand what Jesus was talking about um, is to look at the two uh, best explanations uh, are probably either as a preservative um, against the moral decay of the world or as fertilizer. And I think that it's acceptable to, uh, to, to think of the passage as either. Um, there are good biblical scholars that, um, that argue for either of those two things. Um, and so I wanted to give you the arguments for both this morning. Um, and so we'll start with um, some of the arguments for the preservative, because um, there are also historical arguments uh, for both. But let's take a look at the arguments for preservative. So at the time that Jesus lived, um, they didn't have refrigerators like we do today. And so the way that they preserved food was they would either take their food and they would rub salt onto it, um, or they would take their food and they would store it in rocks that had um, a high amount of salt in them. But then over time, the salt would leach out of those rocks, 
and then the rocks would lose their saltiness, and then they couldn't be used to to preserve their food anymore. Another argument here is that um, while the salt itself, the sodium chloride, um, was, is a stable compound that doesn't lose its salt, their salt uh, there in Israel had contaminants in it, particularly gypsum, which would cause the salt to decay and lose its saltiness, making it good for nothing other than just to spread on walking paths. And then the, um, it would kill the vegetation on the walking paths, making for better roads. So then the argument goes to the metaphor of believers being on the earth to help slow the moral decay of society and forestall God's judgment. The argument, though, has a couple challenges, and we'll cover those in, um, as we look at fertilizer. <clears throat> um, the term salt here um, wasn't only used to describe table salt or salt that was found in the Dead Sea, it was also used to describe nitrates or chemical salts that were used to help fertilize the ground and plant crops. Uh, This is supported by the parallel passage in Luke 14, 35, where Jesus says that salt that lost its saltiness is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Furthermore, the idea that Christians can forestall God's judgment is not true. The time of God's judgment has been determined by God the Father. It is set, and it cannot be changed. We can look at Matthew 24, 36, where Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And while there might be some sense that Christians can slow the moral decay of society, It isn't by their good works in society that it is accomplished, but rather by the spiritual growth that comes from sharing the gospel and teaching sound doctrine. In that metaphor of fertilizer, in that the metaphor of fertilizer is much better because we become a catalyst um, of or or a helper of the Holy Spirit. in the spiritual growth of people as we share the gospel. It's the power of the gospel that changes people, not human effort. And so it's worth pointing out that the only change for moral decay in society is the power of Jesus Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit and the salvation that God the Father calls people to. So the metaphor then follows that once the fertilizer has lost its saltiness, or better rendered from the Greek, its strength, it's it's speaking to aged aged fertilizer, which then becomes less effective over time, and once its strength is gone, it's fit only for to be dirt used on the road. But in either case, whether you choose to look at the salt here as preservative or fertilizer, Uh, there are some common themes. And so this brings us back to our opening question. What would the world be like if there were no Christians in it? It's absolutely undeniable that Christians have had a significant and positive effect on the world. Even secular history attests to this. Listen to some examples that um, Britannica.com 
for those of you old enough to remember the old commercials of Britannica from the encyclopedia, um, you, can, uh, you can think of that. Um, but here are some examples that even Britannica lists. Christianity's influence in Europe and Russia helped to maintain and improve the status quo. In the fourth century, monasteries created a new institution called the hospital to care for the sick. In the area of education, early church fathers like Justin Martyr are credited for holding education in high esteem, and the reformers, particularly Luther, are credited for arguing for the need for public education because they wanted everyone to be able to read the Bible. Luther himself is quoted as arguing for children to stay in school so that, quote, that there will always be preachers, jurists, pastors, writers, physicians, schoolmasters, and the like, for we cannot do without them, end quote. Universities have their roots in the 12th and 13th centuries, where they provided instruction on the liberal arts, law, medicine, and most importantly, theology. Christians founded many of the colleges and universities in the 17th and 18th centuries. On the issue of slavery, Christians are credited for teaching the need to treat slaves justly, and while Britannica rightly points out that some of the churches and denominations promoted slavery, there were more that championed abolition. Martin Luther King Jr., a Christian, is noted as being the leader of the civil rights movement, and that is just a few that Britannica pointed out. The positive impact of Christians in the world cannot be denied. No matter how much the world hates us and persecutes us, some of the most beneficial things in the, in the world today are here because of the work of Christians. However, verse 13 speaks to another common theme of salt. And whether you view salt as a preservative or a fertilizer, it is the aspect of losing its saltiness that is more important. And here is where we really need to pay attention. If you take anything away at all from the conversation on verse 13, I would like it to be this. What Jesus really means by salt here and what it is or what it isn't is much less important than understanding what he meant by losing its saltiness. The whole point that Jesus is making here isn't about what salt does, but it is to say that there are certain characteristics of salt, and if you take away those characteristics, it is no longer salt. When salt isn't salt, it can't do the job that salt is supposed to do. So now listen and understand this. There are certain characteristics to being a Christian, and if you take away those characteristics, the Christian cannot accomplish the mission that Jesus has called us to do. So what are those characteristics? The Beatitudes are those very characteristics. The Christian is poor in spirit, mourns over their sin, is meek, hungers and thirsts for righteousness, is pure in heart, are peacemakers, and will be persecuted. These are the characteristics of a Christian, and this is also where we turn to our Father for eternal security. 
your salvation is secure through the power of Jesus Christ. You can't lose the things that make you a Christian. These are the characteristics that all believers have, and nothing can take away the salvation that has been given to you. Remember 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. You've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things past, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if Jesus isn't talking about losing the characteristics that make us Christians, what is he talking about when he says salt losing its saltiness? Well, he's talking about the influence of sin in our lives. When Christians become marred in sin, we begin to stop practicing the Beatitudes and stop living righteously. And when we do that, when we become caught up in our sin and caught up in worldly pleasure, we can't have a positive impact for God in the lives of the people around us. We, when, when we can't promote spiritual growth and we can't show non-believers how to live in a Christ-like manner, we, be, we begin to look just like the world around us. We begin to look just like the unbelievers around us. But we are called to be the salt of the earth. So we are, we are called to be Christ-like and to live in a Christ-like manner. So we are called to change the earth. And in order to do that, we have to be effective salt and we have to live righteously. But I said that there are two aspects to the nature of the Christian. And so now we're going to look at the second one, which is found in verses 14 and 15, and that is light. You see, salt does have limitations. Salt, whether you choose to look at it as a preservative or as fertilizer, it can never change the substance of the thing that it is applied to. Salt can't change corruption into incorruption, and fertilizer can't can't change the ground to always be nutritious. But the fertilizer becomes used up. With that in mind, we have to turn on the light of the gospel to transform the corruption or the darkness into incorruption or into light. And that is what verses 14 through 16 are all about. So how is it that Christians are light and what does that mean? All throughout the Bible, the light has a direct relationship with two things, God and the Word of God, and then by extension, of course, truth. So John 1.9 calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. John 8.12 says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 35 through 36 says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In John 1.1, Jesus is called the word. And there is so direct a link to light and to God and God's word, Jesus is both the word of God and the light of the world. So now here in verse 14, Jesus does something incredible and he tells his disciples that they alone are the light of the world. So right here, Jesus began to prepare them for his death, burial, and resurrection, right at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus reveals that he has shared his light with them. And if we look at Ephesians 5, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the world. Walk as children of the light. And we do this to shine it for all to see. Jesus first uses the metaphor of a city on a hill. This metaphor was very applicable to the people living at the time. As the best place for, for cities to be built at that time was on a hill. This was for a variety of reasons, but one of the big ones was that at the time when night fell and they lit the lamps on the city, the city could be seen from very far away. In modern times, we don't really worry too much about building cities on hills, um, but however, I can share a story that sort of relates. I lived in Des Moines for uh, seven and a half years, and whenever I would drive back to Fargo for visits, um, it would inevitably be after work, um, and so I would always end up driving back to Fargo and getting here late at night because Des Moines is about seven, seven and a half hours away from Fargo. And so I would always arrive in the middle of the night, sometime between midnight, one o'clock. And there's a very interesting phenomenon that happens when you're driving at night and approaching cities. I'm sure um, many or all of you have, have witnessed it. And it's where you can see the light from cities very far away. Um, and this is called light pollution. And I always enjoyed the light pollution of Fargo as I was driving up because I could always tell when I was getting close to Fargo and when my drive um, was almost over because I could see the lights from Fargo as far away as Barnesville or Rothsay. And after spending six and a half hours in a car alone on the drive, um, it gave me some hope that my time in the, in the drive was almost over. And what's really relevant about that is that it's not just one light in Fargo that causes this effect, but it is all of the lights in Fargo working together uh, to shine bright enough to allow the city to be seen from that far away. And this is what it means to be the light of the world. Christ has given us his light, and God has entrusted the believers with the word of truth. 2 Corinthians 4.6 reaffirms this and leads us to our third foundational truth of, of the Christian faith. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so our first foundational truth was <clears throat> the nature of the world. Our second was the nature of the Christian. 
And now our third is the nature of our mission. And so just like all the individual lights of a city work together to give light more effectively than any one could do on its own, so we, both as individual Christians and as the church, need to be working together as a body, helping and encouraging one another while shining the light of the gospel to the world. Look here at verse 15, where Jesus tells us to put our lamps where people can see them. We can't cover up our light, and we can't hide our faith. Verse 16 commands us to let your light shine before others. The truth of Jesus' power to save sinners does no good if we put it under a basket and don't preach it to the world. Friends, we have an obligation to obey the Great Commission. Romans 10 tells us that it is the church's responsibility to send out preachers to an unbelieving world. Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, gives a passionate prayer to the Father that speaks to the heart of the mission that Jesus lays out in Matthew 5. In John 17, verse 14, um, and going through verse 21, Jesus begins by praying for or about his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the nature of our mission. We are the salt of, and the light of the world, and we only bear the responsibility to influence the world, that the world may believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior. So then we have one more foundational truth of the Christian faith to look at today, and that's the nature of our purpose. Verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is the purpose of the Christian to live a life that impacts those around them in such a way as to show the world the beauty of the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel, so that the Father in heaven will be glorified. The very reason we evangelize is not simply to make believers, but rather to make worshipers. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it perfectly. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
This is our purpose, and it does not get any simpler than that. We are to give God glory in everything that we do, and we are to live lives as the salt and light of the earth so that sinners may come to salvation and to give glory to God. This is exactly why we meet together and worship every Sunday. And this is why we think it's so important that we continue to meet for worship no matter what the circumstances of the world are. If you are a believer here this morning, you are here to worship God for all to see. And if you are not a believer here this morning, please hear what the word of God is telling you. If you haven't ever given your life to Jesus Christ, know this, you are mired in your sin. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus came to this earth, he lived a sinless life, and he died in your place on the cross. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And Jesus is offering you the free gift of eternal life. And again, Romans 10, 10 through 13, will tell you exactly how to accept this gift. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All of the believers here were once in the same place. We were trapped in sins, but we called out to Jesus Christ to ask for forgiveness, and he granted us that forgiveness. While none of us can claim to be perfect, we know that Jesus forgave us, and there is hope and promise in eternal life, guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is why we are here today worshiping God and shining our light to any who will see. And we ask all to call on the name of Jesus for salvation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for your message. Lord, we, we know that we have a lot of work to do to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we know that, um, that there is much more that we could do to impact the lives of those around us. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to, uh, to live righteously, to confess our sins to you, and to work with you and the Holy Spirit to, uh, to work through our sanctification, Lord, that we may live righteously to shine our lights and to be salt, Lord, that we would honor you and glorify you, Lord, and that the lives of those around us could be changed for your glory and that your gospel would spread through the earth, Lord. And we pray that as we continue to worship you, Lord, that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.